My name is Ronnie, if I haven't met you yet. I get to be one of the, the pastors of this church, and then I lead our, our college ministry. My wife, uh, Caitlin, and I have a two-year-old named Jack, who, speaking of just Rob even throwing out this idea that we want to be a family, like, feel so blessed and loved that he's down there getting chased around by somebody else uh, than us right now, by the, by the Doxa family. And then we have a, a three-week-old now named Hayes, who obviously was just born three weeks ago, and we've just been super loved by, by all of you in this family. So even if you, you have heard like, us throughout the idea of like get, get more connected to people, like meet people, join a connection group, whatever it may be, I just want to encourage you more and more to, to take that risk. I know it can be scary. I know it can be commitment and time-consuming, but like take that step, because even this morning, I experienced just the, the joy and dare I say the deliciousness of the family of God in the form of a breakfast burrito that was prepared for me by Kaylee Jansen as a part of our meal train. And so you never know what's going to happen when you're part of the family of God. As I tasted that burrito, you know, this sermon in many ways will be powered by that breakfast burrito I had. And so just want to encourage you uh, more and more to dive into the Doxa family. We're in a series right now going through Romans chapters 5 through 8. So you want to open your Bibles now and turn there to, to Romans chapter 5, and we're basically just looking at the, the central message of Christianity. We call it the gospel. If you don't know what that word gospel means, you're going to hear a lot about it every week. You'll definitely hear about it today. And there was a, a seminary professor named Richard Loveless who he looked out at, at Christians at the church, and he made this statement. He said, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. So he looks out and he says, only a fraction, so only a fraction of us sitting here today are solidly appropriating. So, so taking this message of the gospel of, of being justified by Christ, which is what we've looked at these last two weeks, and solidly uh, taking it to our heart and letting it change us. Only a fraction. And he says that just to say that the current state of the church, the current state of our lives, the current state of joy that we have is related to that. And so that's what we're doing in this, in this series is we're almost, if you picture the gospel message like a diamond, we're holding it up in the air and, it, and it's simple. It's one, you know, there's a wholeness to it, a fullness to it, but there's just so many different facets as to, to what it is and what it means for us that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. And so we've looked at a couple of those facets so far. And we're going to look at another one today, but let me do just a little brief recap of where we've been. If you look at chapter 5 with me, starting in verse 1, we first see that we've been justified by faith. Justified. We've been made perfect with God. It's not just that we're okay. We've been made totally right, spotless, blameless. And get this, not because of anything that you or I have done, but only because of what he's done. Justified. We're at peace with God. Verse 1. Peace. The war is over. The war between you and God is over. He's not angry at you anymore. This is something Jesus has done for you. He's given you peace with God. Verse 2 says we are now standing in grace. Have you ever thought about that? The, the overall context of your life, what you're standing on, if you're a Christian, is grace, mercy. Not a treadmill, not a mountain that you have to climb, but you stand in grace. This is something Jesus has given to you. More than that, it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward, listen to me, that at the end of our lives, it is going to be the best possible happy ending you could have ever thought of and the greatest, most unimaginable beginning 
that you could have ever thought of at the same time, the hope of glory. We rejoice, we look forward to that, that the ultimate thing waiting for us at the end of our lives is this thing called the hope of glory. And then not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is one of the really strange, amazing things about being a Christian, is that even in our sufferings, even in our pain, they're being worked together to produce in us endurance and character and a more certain grasp to our hope. And then if you look with me at verse five, the beginning of verse five says this, and hope does not put us to shame. Our hope will not let us down, would be another way to translate that. All these things that I just said, all these things you hear every Sunday, they're not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not make-believe. Listen, this is your life. This is my life. Do you believe that? One of uh, Caitlin and I's favorite shows to watch is, is Shark Tank. And uh, if you haven't seen the show, the basic premise is you have these entrepreneurs that have come up with a great idea, an invention, a business model, and they're putting it out in front of this group of investors called the Sharks and basically saying, like, hey, in invest in this business, invest in this product. I, I need you to do that, but also there's going to be a great payoff for you. Love watching the show because, you know, it's just funny to see all the different ideas. The other day, uh, one of them that I saw was a, a great, a brilliant, genius solution to the common problem of mosquitoes. So maybe you guys have seen this one, but so there's thousands of mosquitoes running around. We even have dedicated scientists in this church that are working to eradicate that, that problem. Nick Wheeler, keep going. We believe in you. We believe. You and your colleagues. But, but these, these Shark Tank guys, they came up with this idea, okay, and get this, here's the trade-off, bats, Okay. So bats eat thousands of mosquitoes an hour, apparently. Over 10,000 mosquitoes an hour is what they were claiming. And so their idea was to, they built these bat houses that you can then purchase and put in your backyard. So instead of thousands of mosquitoes, you can have hundreds of bats living in your backyard and they will eat the mosquitoes. They called it Bat B&B, &B, okay? <laughs> so I don't know about you guys, but if you want to take that trade off, I think it's like a couple hundred bucks to buy this bat house. You can have the mosquitoes or you could have hundreds of bats living in your backyard. Now, one of the, the things about Shark Tank, like what it, the tension of the show is they're pitching this idea, okay? And then the investors, the sharks have to sit there and say like, how am I going to know if this is going to pay off for me? Why should I believe you? Tell me about your sales. Tell me about your business model. Let me, let me see about you as an entrepreneur. But they're looking to the future and saying, like, how do I know I'm going to get my money back? How do I know that this isn't going to be a letdown? And Paul here in verse 5 just said something amazing. He says, all these things I've been telling you about, your future hope of glory is not going to be a letdown. Hope will not put you to shame. Why? Why is our hope not going to let us down? Why should we believe all this stuff? Well, he gives us a little bit of an answer following that in verse five. Hope does not put us to shame because, do you see that word because? Here's his answer, here's why. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul's answer is, is God's love. We're going to have the hope of glory because of God's love. Now, when I'm talking about hope and the hope of glory, you might not like, understand totally what that means. There's actually something in the Bible that is trying to make us long for it, but never totally telling us exactly what it's going to be, and I think that's why it's going to be so amazing. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. 
John talks about this hope of glory and he says this, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. She says, Christians, beloved, we are God's children now. He loves you right now, but you're not, who you are right now is not who you're going to be. I want you to hope that one day you're going to be glorified. You're going to be made great. Why? Because one day when he appears, when Jesus appears, when Jesus reappears the second time and he brings all the believers to be with him, you're going to see him. Revelation chapter 22 says we're going to see the face of God and we're going to be transformed because we're going to see him as he is. That's just a little hint of what, what this hope of glory is. And Paul says, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. Why? Because of our current experience of God's love. The hope of glory is not going to put us to shame because of God's love. Our future hope, listen, is as real. It's future, but it's as real as your present experience of the love of God. Our hope will not let us down because God will not let us down. Your future hope of glory, you can trust it because you can trust God's love for you right now. And God's love, like people have that tattooed on them. It can be a very general, vague, kind of floating around in the clouds, sentimental statement. But what Paul is going to do for us today is give us a very specific, not general picture of God's love. Look back at verse five. He says, it's poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Using imagery here saying God's love, his personal love is, is poured out abundantly like an overflowing river. Like you dropping yourself into one of these four lakes, like you are overwhelmed by it. But where does it go? Where does God's love go? Into your heart. Can we just think, think about our hearts for a second? Think about your heart. Be a little introspective with me. How does your heart this morning, after, after the week that you had, after the year that you have had, after the life that you have had, how does your heart in its innermost place need to know about the love of God this morning? If you're honest, do you, do you believe that God does love you? Do you know what that means, that God loves you? In your day-to-day -day walk, how much confidence do you have that God loves you? Maybe you're really aware of some sin in your life right now. Has that sin your active rebellion against God, has that sin started to overwhelm you with guilt and shame to the point where you don't really believe that right now God loves you? Or maybe it's not sin, it's suffering. And something's happening in your life or has happened in your life and you can't get past the pain, the, the hurt, the burden. You carry it around and by carrying that burden, it just makes it harder to hear the, the very thing I'm saying to you right now that yes, God, God loves you. Or maybe it's success. Maybe you, you have been so successful lately in your life and it's been so enjoyable to you and you're starting to really feel like you've got this and your success has made you feel like you don't need the love of God. Maybe it's a nice pat on the back, but not just like this, this desperate foundation that you need to stand on. Paul says the love of God poured into our hearts is the foundation for all of this not being a scam in the future. What is your experience of his love like right now? 
the Holy Spirit this morning and the passage we're going to look at, we're going to look at verses 6 through 11. He wants to, to do some convincing of our hearts. This, this experience that's described here of the love of God being poured out into your heart, it says it's by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's an experiential thing. Feel, like feel what it feels like to have water poured over you. There's something about the love of God being poured into your heart that is an experience, an intense experience. But it's an experience, as we'll see, of logic, of an argument, of words. So my two-year-old son, Jack, right now, again, I'm so thankful that somebody else is, is chasing him around because I just don't have the energy to do, to do all that. One of my favorite things to do with Jack as he is running around and he could be misbehaving or he could be not. I love to, to just go and grab him and wrangle him. And he's really long. And so there's just limbs flying everywhere. And I grab him and he's flailing. And daddy, daddy, what are you doing? And I'm just, I grab him and I hold him. And as he's flailing, I look at him and I try to, I say, Jack, look at me. Look at me right now. And he eventually just, daddy, daddy. And then he'll, for a brief moment, look at me. And I say, I love you. And I am way stronger than you. I, and I love that. There's something just so satisfying about being able to be like, I love you and I am so much stronger than you as I hold him. And then his body goes limp and he looks at me and says, love you, daddy. He looks, looks right up at me. And in a similar way this morning, the Holy Spirit, because we're reading it in the Bible, wants to pour out the love of God into your heart that might resist, might run away, might not understand, might think you're too strong, and the Holy Spirit of God will be stronger than your heart this morning. In the same way, he wants to wrestle you to the ground and tell you to listen up, to look at me, to look into the face of Jesus and say, I am way stronger than you, and I love you. You ready to go? All right, verse six. Here's the first move that the Holy Spirit is gonna make on us. He's gonna point us to the death of Christ. Start of verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. Let's put a pause there. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. For, he says, the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of God in your hearts. What is that experience like? Listen to me. For, for, here it is. Here's the, here's the love of God. At the right time, while you were still weak, Christ died. This is a verse about the, the pursuing, initiating love of God. God has been chasing humanity down. There's a big story at work in the world right now of God chasing after a lost and helpless and weak humanity and your little story, your little significant story is a part of that big story and it is a story of God chasing after his people. It says, at the right time, while we were still weak, while we were still lost, can't find God, can't find meaning, can't find joy, can't find satisfaction, can't find what we were made for, lost, weak, incapable of saving ourselves. At the right time, God came. God entered into human history through his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, and it was the right time. That's the big story. But then in your story, think about your story. <laughs> if you're not a Christian right now, I'm talking about like the pre-story, maybe it's this morning before he, you meet Jesus. Your life has been weaving up until this moment. At the right time, God shows up to rescue us. How many of your stories go something like this? I wasn't even looking for him. I was looking for something, for sure. I was alive, I was breathing, I was pursuing pleasure, glory, whatever it is. But then at the right time, Jesus showed up and revealed that it was him all along. At the right time, he showed up. I wasn't looking for him and God found me. 
I didn't just come up with a moral improvement plan and start like beating it and doing it. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm good enough for God. Here I am. No, while I was still weak, he came and found me. Now, don't get the wrong impression about this pursuing love of God because it is glorious, but there's a little thing we need to understand to make sure we're receiving it right. So I think about when I pursued my wife and we don't have time for me to tell the long story, but the short story uh, involves a hot tub, the Cleveland Browns, me pretending to like Taylor Swift, little bits and pieces of my strategy that I'm letting you in on, and, and me just seeing that she was beautiful and I wanted her. She was, I noticed first her physical beauty, and then I saw her, her character, her growing character, which I was going to, sidebar, look for character in a woman that you're going to marry, because when she becomes the, the mother of your children and the woman that you're living your life with, you are going to be so thankful that you married a woman with godly character. Um, saw that, right? Caitlin was desirable. Caitlin was desirable to me, so I pursued her. This is not our story with God. This is not our story with God. Big picture story, God did not see a lost and helpless, innocent humanity. Lost and helpless, but basically good people. In your story, he did not see a lost and helpless, innocent person. What does it say? Verse six, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly the ungodly. This is who we are. But now listen to Paul just open up the floodgates of God's love. Christ died for the ungodly, verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul arguing with your heart about the fact that God loves you. And the force of the argument starts with the pursuing love of God, but then is grounded in who it is that he pursued, which is you and me, ungodly, sinners. Verse 10 says, enemies. God pursues his enemies. Do you know, do you know who you are in this moment? When you think about your story, do you know that that's who God was pursuing when he pursued you? Or do you think that you kind of deserved it? Because if you think you kind of deserved it, that you kind of earned it, the love of God, you will not feel the force of the love of God in your life. But let me correct that with, with the Bible now. It says, no, we were ungodly. We were not like God. We were made to be like him, but we were so far short of who he is because we've turned our backs on him willfully, ungodly. God in his ultimate perfection did not look out at humanity and say, they fit. He said, no, they, they don't fit, ungodly. Sinners, verse eight, we actively rebel against God in disobedience. We are bent towards this. To be a sinner is to be a rebel, to be wicked, to be detestable, to provoke God's anger, to be an enemy, as verse 10 is gonna say. There is real hostility between humanity and and God, no matter how nice you are, or better yet, appear to be on the surface, but not in your heart, compared to other people, no matter how nice you are compared to other people, you and I, we are all enemies of God by nature, sinners, ungodly, broken, separated, and 
this is who God pursues. This is who God orchestrates a, a massive plan of pursuit to come and find. Our world, your life, there is no other love like this. This is, this is Paul's whole argument in verse seven. Look back at it. Verse seven, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So maybe like it, we, we celebrate in the, like war heroes who died for their country and that happens all the time, but we're dying for, for good people, for people that are good compared to us. Not so. This is a different category of love we're talking about here. God dies for his enemies. He dies for the people that are fighting against him. There is nothing lovable about you or I in God's eyes. In fact, we deserve to be destroyed. That is what these words, ungodly, sinners, enemies, are pointing to. But God sent his son to be destroyed instead of you. What else do you call that besides love? This is the love of God. The pursuing, initiating love of God. Listen, he orchestrated a plan to come after you while you were still a sinner. The most costly gift he could have given his son, his perfect son, in exchange for the most worthless recipient, us sinners. And this is where it cuts to the heart for me. I wonder if it will for you. To, to realize what it means that Christ died for me while I was still a sinner, that God chose to love me while I was still a sinner, shows me that God's love is not in response to my performance at all. God's, God's love towards me is not in response to my loveliness. God's uh, love for me is not in response to my character. God just looks out in history and says, I am love, I see these sinners, these rebels, and because I am love, I'm gonna go for them and I'm gonna make them lovely. I'm not dying for you because you are lovely, I'm dying for you to make you lovely. We're gonna sing a song called Amazing Grace after this in a minute and it uses the language of being a wretch. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. Wretch is a, is a word we don't use often, but it encapsulates what a, what a human being is. We're going to sing a song called How Great the Father's Love. And there's a line in there where he says, he makes a wretch his treasure. This is the love of God. Listen, he looked at your life and he didn't see a treasure. He saw a wretch and he died to make you and I a wretch his treasure. That is love. That is the love of God. There is nothing else like it. And what Paul through the Holy Spirit is doing here is he's trying to, to ground our future hope, remember, in the current love of God. God's love poured out. And so let's go back to our hearts here for a second. Think about your heart. Think about all these, all these different things you've been walking through that would make you doubt the love of God. Are you starting to feel at all just a little bit overwhelmed by the love of God being poured out on you abundantly? Our hearts are trained to justify ourselves and to say, God, this is why you should love me. Or no, God, this is why you couldn't love me. But verse five says, no, the Holy Spirit is just pouring it on. It says, my love is stronger than your sin. This should also humble our hearts. Maybe that's something you're feeling in your heart right now, is you're realizing you didn't contribute anything to it. While you were still weak, unable to contribute anything to your salvation, Jesus came and he, he died for you. You didn't deserve this. You are so undeserving. This humbles our hearts. 
then thirdly, it frees our hearts. It frees our hearts from having to work for God's love because he loved us at our worst. If God really loved you while you were still a sinner, then he loved you at your worst possible moments. So now, as a Christian who's been been growing and changing, and yes, struggling with sin, he is not surprised by it. He's not surprised by whatever it is that you're walking with right now, and he chose to die for you before you did any of that. So he is not surprised. He is not shocked. The Holy Spirit right now, he's got us in a headlock, showing us the love of God. He says, listen to me. I know you have a lot of excuses. I love you, and I am stronger than you. And now he just wants to turn our face to look at our hope, all grounded in his love. So look at verses 9 and 10. Look at how, how Paul, how the language here just escalates. Verse 9. We'll start in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If the first move that that the Holy Spirit makes on you is to convince you of the love of God, now he says, hey, this this future hope of glory I'm telling you about, it's all going to come true. Why? Here's the argument. If Christ died for his enemies, how much more is he going to do for his friends? If Jesus died for you at your worst, when you were an enemy of God, now that you're in his family, now that you've been reconciled to him, how much more is he going to do for you? Paul's answer is much more. Much more. This is his argument. He points to two aspects of our future hope, two aspects of of the much more. First, verse 9, we are saved from the future wrath of God. Saved from, from future wrath. God is talked about in the Bible as, as holy. And the word holy, it means separate, different, distinct, in a way that makes you want to worship him, and in a way that makes him immensely powerful. Sometimes people will use like the sun as, as an example of, of kind of what it means to be holy. The sun is crucial to our solar system, right? It is, it is other. It is different. It is distinct. We need it. There's nothing else like it, no substitute for it. It is blight, bright and, and blazing. But if you get too close to the sun, you get incinerated, right? And think about it. The reason for that is because there's nothing else like the sun, including you. If you get too close to the sun, you as a, as a human being will be incinerated by its massive gravity and heat and a whole bunch of other science stuff that you can ask Nick about after, after the service. That's, that's a picture of holiness. There's another line in a song that we're going to sing, I think it's an amazing grace, where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, really weird line, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no more days to sing his praise than when it, it just begun. We're going to be bright shining as the sun. What does that mean? It means we're going to be holy. We're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. We are going to be made like God enough so that we can now approach and be with his amazing power and holiness and not be incinerated. Because at the cross, what does it say in verse 9? Jesus justified us by his blood. Jesus 
He took the wrath of God on the cross for you, so you are now saved from that wrath. You're gonna be bright shining like the sun someday. You're gonna be holy one day in glory. This should give us relief. In Christ alone is another song. It says, there's no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. No guilt. No eternal guilt in your life. We can feel bad about wronging each other and we can feel godly grief and sorrow over our sin as Christians. But we don't have that, that guilt of judgment hanging over our heads anymore. We don't even have fear in death anymore. This is the power of Christ in us. The second aspect of our future hope that he points to is, is in verse 10. Read that again with me. It says, For while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. At your worst, while you are an enemy of God, Jesus died for you. God loved you. And now that you're reconciled, how much more are you going to be saved by his life? I almost picture it as if Jesus, he dives down to the bottom of the ocean. Okay, so just picture him just diving down and you're all the way down there. All the way down there in your sin, your ungodliness, your unrighteousness. You're all the way down there. And it is a true picture of humanity. We have run away from God. We turn away from God. We try to chart our own course. We try to build our own future, build, build our own lives. And it ends up being just a darker and darker, deeper and deeper departure from who we were made to be. And that's where we are. And the Jesus, he, he swims down there and he gets you at your worst. You couldn't save yourself. You couldn't possibly swim back up to the top. But because he's stronger than you and because he loves you, and because he rose from the grave, he starts to swim up. And now in our Christian life, he's holding you and he's swimming up to the surface. And you, can, you still look around and you're like, it is still dark here. I am still sinning. There is still suffering. But I am moving upwards. I'm going up. He saved me. He, he died for me when I was a sinner. And now he's got me close and he's saying I'm his friend. I'm flailing around and I'm saying you couldn't love me. And he says, you stop it. I am stronger than you. Look me in the eye. And we swim up. And you can see the light coming up above the water. And as you're swimming up there, you see it. It's the hope of glory. It's the best ending of a story, or uh, happy ending you could ever think of, and the best beginning of a story that's never been written that you could ever think of. And we're going towards it. And Jesus is going up there. How much more, verse 10 says, will we be saved by his life? The most brilliant, powerful, impeccable human being that has ever lived has been Jesus Christ. And it's because he was also God. And he rose from the grave to glory. There's another line in the song, this is so great. We're going to sing, it's going to say, bringing many sons to glory. He's, he's bringing us up with him. We are his friends. We are friends of God. That's what the word reconciled means. The war is over. He is not angry at you anymore. And if you think he should be angry at you, look at the cross. Look at the blood of the cross and say, you should be angry at me, God. Your wrath should be on me, but it went on Jesus instead. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And so if you've got a bit of a complex in your head like I do, of like, you know what, God? I, I do agree that I didn't deserve this. And so I also understand theologically that you died on the cross for my sins, and so I'm here. And you know what? You must pity me so much. Like, you had to send Jesus to die for me, so I'm just gonna kind of keep my head down I'll be in the church, like, I'll be there in heaven someday, but you don't have to see me. You don't have to worry about me. 
I know I'm kind of a mess. I've got to be one of the worst people that you've ever, you've ever saved, especially since I know my own heart. And you just kind of keep a low profile. And you have this complex of like, God, he loves me in this like general way because he like has to or something, but he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really enjoy me. He, he still sees this, this sin that I'm and There's no way that he could, he probably regrets doing this all for me. The Holy Spirit would argue right back with your heart and say, if you were saved by his death when you were an enemy, how much more are you going to be saved by his life? You are reconciled to God. He loves you. He likes you. He sings over you. He, he sees who you're going to be and he rejoices. He knows you're not who you're going to be right now, but he sees it and he's taking you there. And this is the type of text, guys, where it's just like, yes, we, have, we, we need to work through our, our sin issues even as Christians. But he's just like, let's just stop for a second and receive the love of God. Your hard work right now in this sermon is just to believe that. There's nothing else I'm going to tell you, tell you to do, even as an implication of the gospel. But just would you believe that God really loves you? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Not based on you. Not based on your circumstances in your life but based on the cross. This is our evidence. And how much more should our future hope be guaranteed by this love of God? Verse 11 is the, is the last verse. And he kind of brings us all the way back home. This is going to end like a major section in Romans chapter, chapter 5. And he says this, more than that, more than everything else I've just said, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, right back where we started, rejoicing in God. This is Paul's goal. This is, this is the, the emotive, spiritual response that should be evoked based on this truth. Remember I told you it's, a, it's an experience, the Holy Spirit, it's an experience. When I wrestle Jack, it's an, it's a tan, he can feel it. It's an experience, but it is logic. It is an argument. It is a look at the cross. You don't feel like God loves you? Look at the cross. This is the proof. You don't think that this hope of glory stuff is really going to happen? Look at the cross. How much more? It's an experience of intense logic, and we should rejoice in it. Strips away all self-confidence. All of it. This is why we sing. You listen to, so there's, there's songs we sing on a Sunday morning as the church, and there's other songs that are on the radio that we listen to, and that's fine, you can listen to those. But notice, the other songs that we sing are about ourselves, or they're about other people. And we're, we're boasting. This word rejoice, it means to, to boast, to put our confidence in, the, the joy that is a byproduct of that boasting. And so we, we boast and we sing about ourselves being great in some songs, or we boast and we sing about other people being great in other songs. Christian hope leaves only room for boasting in God. It is not because of you or because of me that I will have the hope of glory. It is only because of him, and so I rejoice. And this is to be the dominant experience of the Christian life, is joy, rejoicing, boasting in God, even in our sufferings. Even in our hardships, even in our pain, it's not that those things don't exist and that they're not really, really hard. It's that God has now given us a perspective and a vantage point where we look over it all and we look back at the cross, we live with no fear and guilt in this life, and we look forward to our hope of glory and we know it's sure and we know it's certain and so we rejoice. 
two little observations about rejoicing and then we'll be done. Just to, to help us, to help us rejoice. The first one is, is inwardly what's happening when we rejoice. If you were to obey this passage of scripture and rejoice inwardly, what would be happening is you'd be experiencing supernatural logic. Supernatural. It's from God, the Holy Spirit, pouring out into your heart. But it's not like a rave. You guys know what a rave is? Anybody been to a rave recently? I've never been to a rave. I'm speaking a little bit out of turn, but I, I know some people that have. And it's like, a, it's an incredibly frenzied, exciting experience, right? You know, you got, there's noise, there's sensation. It, it's like, you're, you're basically happy, I think, when you're at, at a rave. Like, it's like, but it, what is it based on? Nothing, right? It's, it's based on either you're, you're, you're high on the, just the experience of whatever's happening or you're high on a drug that is helping you have the experience, but it's unreality. It is happiness and joy based on unreality. What this experience of verse five is talking about is a, a deeper joy, a more transcendent happiness based on reality, logic, the cross of Christ, that is the inward experience that leads to rejoicing. And we pursue it by reading our Bibles and seeing it there. Just like we've done just now for the last 35 minutes, we've, we've seen the Holy Spirit argue with us. And sometimes that's going to feel like you sitting there with your Bible and reading it and praying. Sometimes it's going to feel like an experience like this and preaching. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is going to sound like your friend that is quoting scripture to you. Or saying something that's based off of scripture to remind you to wrestle your heart down to the point where it believes in, in the love of God. So we pursue this inward supernatural logic and then outwardly our rejoicing. So this is what it looks like to other people. It should, it should look like humble confidence. Okay, humble confidence. Our world knows a lot about Humility or, or even like the, the offshoot of just being self-deprecating and like, like I'm not that great. And then it knows a lot of, of saying that I'm great and being confident. But what the gospel produces is a humble confidence. A humility that says my boast is in God. My trust is in God. My future is, is brought to me by God. My, my past sins are forgiven by God. Humility, but confidence by God. It's, it's God. He looked me in the eye and he commanded me to be confident. He just said, believe this. Stop arguing with me and believe that I love you. Look at my cross. Look at my cross. Look at my cross. And then we are confident. We rejoice. So when we sing in a minute, guys, I hope some of these things fill your heart. I, I hope that your voice is lifted just a little bit more into that, that level of rejoicing. So sing with humility. Sing with wonder. Sing with confidence. We're not singing these things and asking them for God to be true. God says these things are true and Jesus paid for them. Now you sing them and you be confident. They are yours. You don't have to be trepidatious about these supernatural realities I'm giving you. They are yours by the blood of my son. If I sent Jesus to die for you when you were at your worst, how much more am I gonna do through his life in you? Let's pray. Father, we're going we're gonna to sing about your deep love for us here in a second. And I know one of the, one of the greatest temptations for the uh, person in this room that is a Christian 
is to not believe the words because of sin that we're living in or suffering that we're experiencing or to be dull to those words because of success that we're having. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would just eliminate all of that. God, through the singing of words that are true, not words that we have to work to make true, but words that you already work to make true, I pray that through the singing of those words, that our hearts, our individual hearts, will rejoice in Christ alone. So it's in his name that we pray and that we will sing. Amen.